Hi, everyone. This is the More Conversations podcast with the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. My name is Robert Malcolm, a senior finance major from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm here with Mr. George Land, the senior vice president of NBA Africa and Morehouse class of 85. Hi, Mr. Land. How are you doing? Doing great, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, so you've been here today, all day, answering questions. How are you feeling? I feel great. It's, it's great to be home. Uh, Morehouse is my home. Uh, the house is my home. Right. And it's been it's been really nice to be back on campus. I have not engaged in the King Chapel in 37 years. And so it brought me back. And uh, it was just great to see the young men of Morehouse um, turn up and uh, and just to be back home. Of course. And you were here for homecoming, right? I was here for homecoming a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And how was that coming back? First homecoming in a little while. It was, it was overwhelming. Uh, it was just a lot of people. I saw a lot of friends I hadn't seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was good. You know, the music was good. The food was good. The friends were good. It was, it was nice to, 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 to be at homecoming. I hadn't, I hadn't been here for homecoming in several years. So mm-hmm. it was nice. Okay. Well, take us back to uh, your time at Morehouse and just your experience going through Morehouse, letting Morehouse go through you. How was that? So I was a transfer student. And so when I came to Morehouse, I spent my freshman year at Duke University. And so when I got here, I sort of fell in with the class behind me, the class of 86, because I was taking some some intro courses in science, you know, biology and chemistry and things like that. And so I really became close with a, a lot of people in the class of 1986. A lot of cliques had already start to form friendships. You know, Morehouse has a very special freshman year and orientation and, and some bonding that happens. I missed all of that. So I, the class of 86 had a lot of people from Atlanta. And so I knew quite a few people. I sort of fell in with that crew and a lot of them were on campus. Um, and so it was a different experience um, because Duke is a all white, you know, mostly white institution of PWI. And uh, it's bigger. The culture is different. And so then coming here, you know, was funny because at on Duke's campus, all the black people spoke. Right. You know, because you, there's so few of us. So you always made sure to say what's up. And I found myself here trying to speak to everybody and people were like, you know, what's up with this guy? Uh, but, but slowly I fell into, um, to Morehouse, the spirit of it and, um, really had a great, great three and a half years here, um, studying science. We had some wonderful, um, science professors, um, organic chemistry and, and biology and histology and, and really prepared, uh, those of us who were in the health careers, uh, professions to be, to be ready to go. And then that decision to go from Duke to Morehouse, what was the catalyst? Well, the catalyst was, um, I had an, an academic advisor who would not co-sign on my, uh, major form. You know, when you have to declare a major, I wanted to, to be pre-med and I made a C in chemistry. This guy was an older guy who had, I think, you know, some notions. And um, 
he had written the book. He had written the lab. And he was he was world-renowned chemist. And he looked at me like I'm looking at you and said, I am not signing your major because you don't have what it takes to be a doctor. And it was at that point, I'm 18 years old. I'm being told by this world-renowned chemist that I don't have what it takes. It was crushing. And my parents were like, look, you can stay at Duke, change your major, or you can think about how you're going to reach your dream. If that's your dream, you may have to make some changes. And and honestly, my academic career at Duke was nothing stellar. And so my dad reintroduced me to the idea of coming to Morehouse, which I had sort of overlooked because I grew up here in Atlanta. I grew up around the college and just wanted maybe something a little bit different. But when he reintroduced me to that idea, um, I knew that that was my destiny and that there was an opportunity to still uh, meet my dreams. And what I would say is at a school like Duke that has so many pre-med you know, students, they're, they're more interested in weeding out so that they get the cream of the crop. At Morehouse, Morehouse was interested in developing young black doctors. And so there was a different mindset. There was a different support system and, um, and a different kind of caring, uh, which I thrived, I thrived on. Right. Okay. So then you come back to, you come to Morehouse yeah. and you go through Morehouse, you graduate, and then you're applying to grad school as a bio major. You're going to medical school and then you decide to go be a logger for the MBA. Can you tell us about your experience in medical school and just going through and then tell us about how you made that decision? So I applied to medical school because I had done well here at Morehouse and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so the next step is if you're good, you take the MCATs and maybe you get in. I didn't know I was going to get in, but I think I surprised everyone with my test scores and I was able to get into a top 15 uh, medical school, University of Pittsburgh. And so what do you do when you get in? You, you go. So I went and it was good. It was exciting, but I don't think I was ever passionate about it. It was, it was, it was more like this was something that I needed to do. And so just, I'm going to get through this. And I'm going to do this, but it was, there was no real passion for it. And I didn't, ha- I didn't know what I had a passion for. Um, and so I went, I went to school. Uh, I took some time off. I worked in the Allegheny County crime lab, which if you saw the movie concussion and Will Smith's character reported to the chief medical examiner, I reported to that chief medical examiner um, because I was based in Pittsburgh and based on a true story. Um, and so very interesting, um, experiences. I worked in a, in a biochem lab and we were doing, uh, research on, you know, RNA protein synthesis, which is very, uh, apropos for today as we talk about the coronavirus and, and doing very, uh, extensive research using sea urchin. 
all that was very interesting, but it wasn't my passion. And so finally, when I was a third year uh, medical student and we were starting to do rotations, no more books just now, you're just rotating through the different, um, the different disciplines within medicine. I was doing my pediatrics rotation and they happened to put me in, uh, in with the, the kids that were diagnosed with AIDS and HIV. And that was a time uh, where it was before Magic announced that he had been infected. Everyone was dying from the disease. I felt helpless with these kids. It took an emotional uh, toll on me. And it was a nice stopping point for me to, to think about what I really wanted to do. And so I petitioned the dean. They gave me a, uh, a leave of absence, uh, good standings leave of absence. So I could come back anytime I wanted to. And I started to try to look around. And as I looked around and as I started to write letters, because that's what we had to do in those days, write letters and send them off and then hope somebody reads the letter. Hope it gets to where you're going, where it's supposed to go. Hope someone reads the letter and then have that letter answered and sent back to you. It was a process. And so I sent letters to everyone. I mean, any sort of sports organization, I sent a letter to. And I just so it just so happened that I had a friend who had just started working at the NBA and she was what we call a logger, which is the, the most entry level job you can have at NBA entertainment. You, you, you're basically sitting at a desk for eight hours and you're assigned three NBA teams and you basically log all of their home teams, all their home games. So if the Minnesota Timberwolves are playing at home, the tapes come in and you're, you're typing in, the plays from that game into this database. Tedious. Yes. Very tedious. Um, and you have to love the game. You have to know the game one. And, but then you have to love the game. So it's tedious and it paid no money. And she had just started doing that. And she said, Hey, you know, they're really looking for a, a logger, but especially logger one, a historical logger, because they need someone. We have all these tapes in the, in the library and in the, in the vault, they're deteriorating. We don't know what's on them. And they need someone who can recognize players without the names on their back, without, you know, just someone who has this a, a history. And she's like, I know you love sports history. That's your thing. So she's like, you got to call this guy, call the guy. And uh, he asked me, hey, how far back does your history go? I said 1946. And he was like, OK, 1946. Can you name any players off the 1950 Minneapolis Lakers championship team? <clears throat> and I said, well, of course, there's George Mike and uh, Vern Mickelson. Jim Pollard, uh, Bud Grant, Bob Harrison, Herm Schaefer, you know, I named, I named about seven or eight players off that team. And this is before the internet is you can't, you couldn't just look something up like that. You had to know it. And he was absolutely floored by that and immediately wanted me to, to come up to Jersey for an interview. And so after some time and I didn't really have the money to, to come up. They weren't flying entry-level people up for, for jobs. So uh, I finally made it up for an interview. And, um, and, and just, you know, the interview was interesting because they were asking me questions about basketball. And, and the executive producer, um, eventually, you know, my big boss said, look, I, I don't know what's up with you. I mean, you're about to be a doctor. I don't know why you want this job. You're going to work weekends. You're going to work at night. You're going to work at holidays. You're not going to be rich. 
but if you want to do it, we'd love to have you. And I was like, I want to do it. And, uh, and, and they hired me. So can you talk a little bit about the courage it took to take that leave of absence from medical school and go take that job where you had to work weekends and nights and then also be paid nothing? Well, it was, it was a tough time for me because I was paying through my school through loans. And so it was a tough decision because you don't know the next, whether the next move is going to allow you to make enough money to pay back all of the debt that you owed. My parents could not do that. So I had to figure out for myself how that was going to happen. What's more, you had people who were, who were sort of naysayers about the idea of leaving medical school in, in, in my third year. Um, there weren't very many people who understood the idea of leaving University of Pittsburgh Medical School uh, in my third year to, to take a job in New York as a logger for less than $20,000 a year where I would have to live with two other people, you know, three people in a one bedroom uh, just to, just to exist. Uh, People did not understand that. So it was, it was a, it was a scary time for me, but uh, I have faith. Um, I have faith in myself. I've always better myself and always just sort of trust that things are going to work out and that I have some sort of control over that. And the control that I had was um, I worked very, very hard. Um, I did not pass up any opportunities. Uh, Once they asked me, could I do audio? Um, It was MLK Day and it was a game. It was the Suns versus the Knicks. Barkley was in town and, and it was a holiday. And so they couldn't find people to, to work. And so they were like, hey, we need someone to do audio. Can you do audio? I've never done audio in my life, but I said, yes. And I was like, I'll figure it out. You know, if I have questions, I'll ask them, but I'm going on this, going on this shoot. And so that was really my mindset and my attitude about that. Just, and the fact was also that I was, I had been in medical school. I was used to staying up overnight in the hospital. I was used to staying up overnight studying. So when the, younger loggers who were just fresh out of college when the day was over, they wanted to go to New York and and have a good time. And when producers needed someone to help them because we had a show the next day, uh, they were asked for volunteers. And I was like, I'll do it because I didn't know anyone in New York. Really? I had never been to New York uh, before I interviewed. And so I got a reputation as someone who would do anything. Uh, just ask George, he'll, he'll do it. And that paid off for me. Sometimes first impressions can carry a long way. If it's a bad impression, it takes a long time to, to retract that. If it's a good one, sometimes it, it takes you even more than, than you even thought it would. So that was really sort of my thinking behind, you know, the courage. I had my father who told me he was really the one who said, look, if you, if you're doing something, if you find something that you love to do, then you will work hard at it and the money will come and you'll be happier than 80% of the people, uh, you know, in the U S because people work to make money. You'll be working because you're happy because you're passionate about something. And he was like, and trust me, the money will come may not 
be right away, but it will come. And I have to say that was some of the most sage advice I've ever received in my life. A lot of brothers at Morehouse right now are going through a transition. Maybe you're graduating or a transfer student. What advice would you give them to have that courage and to be able to bet on themselves like you'd have? Yeah, it's, it's a process. And sometimes you have to do things that are not really your passion just to sustain you because there is this reality about life and that, you know, there's this need to be able to sustain yourself, to make money, uh, to take care of some basic needs. So the thing that you love may not present itself right away, or you may not be able to get to it. So you may have to take some other opportunities that you would not ordinarily take, but you have to make ends meet. Um, I believe in taking something and holding on to it till something better comes and just continue to keep refining uh, sort of the things that you want to do. When I joined the NBA, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I mean, that was fine looking at old films. I didn't know where that was going to take me. And so I just kept matriculating through the uh, the organization. Opportunities would come up. Oh, that sounds like a good one. Uh, maybe maybe I can sort of raise my hand and say, hey, can I get on that? And and so I, I, I think about it like that, um, that it's not going to be, you know, I think there's this tendency to, to want things to happen very quickly. I was 29 years old uh, when I was hired at, at NBA Entertainment. Um, so I had had the better part of a decade trying to figure out what I was going to be and what I was going to do and getting in debt. Um, so it's, it's not an easy thing. There's a lot of soul searching. Um, there is the idea of trying to figure out what you're good at, what you like to do, uh, what's available and what's needed, you know, if they're marked for, and those four things and trying to figure out sort of that, that intersection of those four things. It's a small little intersection. So you might have to, 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 to do more of the sort of what the market is and, and what you're good at maybe. And then maybe the passion and all that comes in later. But, you know, it's, it's different for everyone. The journey's not the same. Some people never find it, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, it's really just staying true to, to, to the process of finding that. And, and relationships are really big because people typically want to help other people. And so if you're, if you're developing relationships, there might be someone that you could call on someone who can mentor you. Uh, mentorship is, is really important. Um, that would be my advice. And so now you're a logger at the NBA, you're 29 and you're trying to just work your way through. Then you get more opportunities. You keep creating relationships. And finally you get the opportunity to go to China. How did you decide that that opportunity was right for you and that you would make the most of that opportunity? So I had a little more control over this one because no one asked me to go to China. I saw that the league was investing more money in China. I understood, uh, the, you know, the market tailwinds really 
in all industries that China was a place that everyone was trying to grow. I knew that China, um, you know, we had 330 million fans in China and I was in content and I, I saw some opportunities that I thought we weren't taking advantage of. And so because my daughter was interested in learning Chinese and was taking Chinese lessons already and my son too, uh, just by happenstance, um, I thought that there might be an opportunity for us to do something really different, really special, but it was really just a, a shot in the dark. So I wrote up a job description to say, I think the organization needs someone in, at NBA China who understands our culture, who can be a senior leader to help guide people who are working for the NBA who have never even been to the U.S. to understand this culture that we've established there for decades. Um, and then to have, you know, I call myself a content professional um, in the market to help grow and and I looked, I wrote this and I looked at it for about a year. For about a year. I didn't do anything. I just kept, ah, is this something I want to do? And then I felt like, you know, the time was right. Um, and I asked my wife, are you, you know, you, you interested in doing something like this? And she was like, if you are, I am. And so I presented to, to the commissioner at the time, David Stern. And we tend to move pretty slowly in hiring people and making moves, big moves. <clears throat> I, I spoke to him on July 10th, 2012. By December 28th, 2012, we had closed up our house in New Jersey, packed up everything, and we were living in China. And it happened very quickly. Um, and so, in a sense... I almost didn't have enough time to think about it. Once they said, yeah, you know, it's one thing to, to dream. It's another thing to, for someone to say, okay, yeah, you, you, we should do that. And then you're like, oh my goodness, like this, could be, this, this is happening. And do I really want this? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so um, we didn't have any time to think about it. We started to learn, we started to be enrolled in acculturation lessons to learn, you know, about China, to learn about how to do business there. I spent time in Colorado the organization teaching me how to greet people, just all kinds of things. Um, and so, yeah, it was, there was courage, but I also was sort of responsible for that move. And the other thing was that Adam Silver, who was the deputy commissioner then, he's our commissioner now, called me into his office um, about three days before, I, before we were leaving. And he said, you know, George, I know that you signed this sort of three-year agreement to do this in China, but this might not work out. And you shouldn't feel any pressure because if it doesn't work out, forget the three-year commitment. We'll bring you home. And that really did take all the pressure off of me because Adam expressed his support. I believe in Adam. I believed in him then. I believe in him now. And, um, and, and, and a man of his word. And so it made me feel better. It really did take a lot of pressure off of me, uh, to just go in and try to make the best of it. Okay. Yeah. So you're there. So you, you go in, you make the best of it. Now you're there. What's the strategy to grow NBA at China? Excuse me. So when I 
got there, uh, we were not hitting our revenue numbers. Um, and I think we needed to reforecast those numbers. And so we took a very hard look at our business and the business opportunities, the climate, and to really sort of think about how we were going to do this. One of the things that we wanted to do was to uh, make sure that we could partner with the government, specifically the Ministry of Education, because we thought the fastest way to grow the game among kids is to have basketball as part of the curriculum in schools. And, you know, with China, it's one country, it's 1.3 billion people, but it's one country. And if the government backs you, supports you, and you can create a partnership, then it will, it will happen. And we knew that the biggest way to grow our fan base, one of the biggest ways, is to have kids play basketball. Because we'd done research, and we understood that if you have kids playing basketball before the age of 11, they're about 70% more likely to be um, lifelong fans. And that's really important. Um, The other thing that I could control more so was creating content that was localized. So not just bringing over highlights from, you know, yesterday's game. People can go to ESPN for that. But how do we, how do we make it so that it's of interest to the broader Chinese fan? So, you know, do you do trans, do, do you have it uh, voiced in Mandarin? Uh, do you understand which players that are the favorites in China and make sure that more of that content, do you, do you create opportunities to go behind the scenes with a Steph Curry who was very popular and have him say some things um, to the Chinese fans, um, you know, or feed them lines that they would have fun with, that they can talk back and forth. People, people were very interested in China anyway. And so there was this real opportunity to create really good content. And, and I think we exhibited sort of what good content could be. And we started to sign uh, more lucrative media rights deals because there was an understanding there was of, of, of sort of the, the, uh, the opportunity, even on the Chinese media side, how popular this content was. So, um, for me, I, I, I uh, created a show called NBA Primetime, and uh, it was a lifestyle show, magazine show, and it aired on Thursday nights. And we got 4 million viewers on average each night. It was the number one um, sports show that was not news or live. It was the number one sports show in China for seven years. Uh, it was a show I wrote, uh, but but co-produced it with the, my good friends at CCTV, which is, um, you know, the China television network there. Uh, and it was, it was, uh, it was amazing. Um, and so I think that was really the strategy. And then once you have that, once you can create this demand then you can sign partnerships, people want to partner with you because you're a popular brand. Right? So that was really what, what our thinking was. So my last question is you're successful in China. You hit your revenue numbers. Then you go to Africa, Africa is a continent with 54 different countries. Can you just talk really quickly about the challenges you faced in Africa? 
that you did not face in China and how you're still working through those? That's a very good question, Robert. Um, you're right. Um, I think as Africa grew as a priority market, people were quick to say, well, us, it's, it's just like China. It's 1.3 billion people, just like it is in China. Um, and so this should be, there's a playbook for this. And, and while theoretically there is, as you mentioned, uh, in China, it's one country, it's one government, and um, it's, it's a good chance to partner with that government to grow the game of basketball. Um, in Africa, there are 54 countries, there are 54 governments, there are 54 ministries of education, there are 54 ministries of sports, there are 54, you know, more than that, national languages, uh, cultures. And so it's very fragmented. And so the impact of an agreement with a country to to grow their sports and specifically their basketball ecosystem. Uh, it's great, but it's not as impactful as, you know, signing that same thing in China because of just the, the, the fractured structure of Africa, the segmented structure of Africa. Uh, so we have to come up with different ideas. The, the other piece is basketball in China is the number one team sport. In Africa, sadly to say, uh, football, soccer, as we call it, is by far the number one sport. And so it's funny, basketball in Africa is thought of as an elitist sport. You, know, you have to have a basketball and shoes and a goal. And, and, and in the U.S., it's sort of different. We don't think of basketball as an elitist sport. We think of tennis and golf and swimming more so. Uh, but it's just a different perspective. Um, and so, you know, working through the challenges of really introducing the game more and have people understand the game and, and engage. People know our brand. People know the NBA. Um, they know Hakeem Olajuwon. They know Dikembe Mutombo. But they, they, they have not engaged with it to the level in which we would like for them to engage. So figuring out, you know, from a fan acquisition standpoint, how we can do that better. Um, we want to have media rights, uh, people to pay for our, our games um, all across the continent because we want the game to be more accessible for everyone. We want to build courts so that kids can play all over the continent and that the game become more accessible for them. And we want to, we want to be good by doing good and having a social justice platform and using our sport. We're not philanthropic. We're a business. We need to make money. But the difference is the money that we make goes back into the programs and it allows us to do more good. And so the social justice, we need money to do that. So we, that's part of our budget that, it's not, there's no revenue from that. We, we just, we want to, we want to make sure that girls have the same amount of opportunity to play basketball or to become coaches or to get a STEM education. Um, we want, we want those things. And, and so we think basketball 
can be transformative, has a transformational power. And we also believe that basketball can be an economic engine that can spur, can be a catalyst to spur an entire community, um, meaning businesses can come in if, if we, you know, are there. Um, and we also believe that it can be, um, you know, something that creates a positive social change. Okay. And that's what we're interested in. Good. Well, this has been a great conversation with the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership. We'd like to thank you, Mr. Land, for coming to speak with us. And that's all. Thank you. Thank you, Rob.